Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Heyman, medievalist, and so excited to have a fellow fan of Louisa May Alcott on Old Books with Grace today. Uh, With me, I have Dr. Luella D'Amico, who is a scholar of American literature and especially of the literature of childhood. And we get down to some very, very important topics, such as should Joe and Lori have ended up together? Dr. Luella D'Amico is an associate professor of English and coordinator of the Women's and Gender Studies program at the University of the Incarnate Word. Her primary research interests lie in girlhood, girl culture, and religion in early and 19th century American literature, and she has published numerous articles in this vein for academic and popular venues. She has also edited a volume about the history of girls' series books in the U.S., and is co-editor of Reading Transatlantic Girlhood in the Long 19th Century. Her current book project is titled Wondrous Reading, Encountering the Catholic Faith in Children's Literature. She lives on the outskirts of San Antonio, Texas, with her husband, two children, and rambunctious chihuahua, Leroy. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm so excited you're here, Luella, and I can't wait to talk about one of my favorite literary folks, Louisa May Alcott, with you. Oh, I'm so glad to be here and to be with another Alcott aficionado. That always brings me joy. Yay. Me too. Me too. Um, So I always ask folks to get to know you questions when they come on the podcast And the first is, and you can't answer Louisa May Alcott, you have to come up with something else. What or who is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago and why? Okay, so I'm not going to answer Alcott, but she'll come up in the answer, I think. So my favorite one um, is a, a novel probably most of your listeners. And I don't know if you've uh, read this before. Um, it's a book from the 19th century. It was published in the same era as Little Women, but it's called The Hidden Hand by EDN Southworth. And it was incredibly popular. It's about um, an American, like an orphaned American girl who was found by a Virginia sort of wealthy man in the North as she's pretending to be a boy. Um, she's a, she's a page boy. She's four. And so she's, she's basically calling out and selling newspapers. And then she finds out that she is actually related to this very rich man. And it goes to Virginia. It's this really dark Gothic tale. So for a long time, my favorite novel was Jane Eyre. Love Jane Eyre. Okay. I see a thread here. Yes. (laughs) The Hidden Hand is sort of like Jane Eyre, but set in the United States. And it is sort of dark and it has romance and adventure and the the main character Capitola goes all over the American countryside and it's basically the heroine of her entire adventure story. There 
like the most popular name in the 19th century after this came out was Capitola. So if you no way, around, really? Name Capitola. 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 Get yeah, it? Like the the subtitle is called Capitola the Madcap because she's so boisterous. Okay. And a lot of people will relate her as a back to and yeah, heritage of Joe March that she's sort of. Joe March taken to be a little bit darker and in Gothic Joe March. <laughs> Joe March. Wow. Okay. Then, That's intriguing. <laughs> what I said that I might bring up, but it's not about little women. Um it, Joe at one point is writing those tales. Um, and Professor Bear is like, Ooh, I don't think your tales are moral enough. And she says, Well, I'm writing them in the style of this moment called S-L-A-N-G, so slang Northberry, and E-D-E in Southworth was the person who wrote The Hidden Hand. So she's sort of talking about she's mimicking this other. So I recommend for those of you who haven't read The Hidden Hand to go and get it. It is a wonderful American Gothic women's tale. I read it in a night, and if you happen to be around me for any amount of time, and I feel as if we're literary friends, I usually give people the hidden hand. You have to read this. So that's okay. that's my favorite. Oh, that's an exciting, an intriguing answer. So we, Gothic, Joe March, Jane Eyre set in America. Let's go. Okay, so question number two is, which literary character do you most identify with and why? Uh, this is a tough one. I feel like there are so many and then they change. Right. So it, it can be, you know, like of the moment or you can tell one. I think a lot of people answer like their teenage answer because sometimes it's easier to say who it was when you were 16. So I think probably as I have been reading these books with my kids recently, too, um, probably Nancy Drew. Not that so Nancy Drew is very she's perfect right she's always able to solve the crime she's never um hesitant she's very (laughs) confident confident the whole package and i think reading this and she asks questions she's nosy and so she's who i think i would like to be on my best days Mm, okay and also probably who the people around me are like oh i maybe wish luella wouldn't ask so many questions (laughs) There's something about a mystery and being a woman who's just sort of unafraid to take all the risks, you know, get on looking out my window right now, but like get in an airplane and save the world and then, you know, go from one area, like go from the United States to Europe and sort of be everywhere solving mysteries. So in another life, right, that's what I would like to do. I love that. She's aspirational in this way, but I'm probably not enough like her. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> really I like that asking a lot of questions a little bit nosy really excited yes. super curious that's great okay so you are uh, before we get into Louisa May Alcott and spending some time with her um I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about your research because you're a professor who studies children's literature specifically like girlhood literature in the 19th century and early American literature and I want to know how you got there. How did you get into that field? What led you there? 
So I mentioned the hidden hand, and that was part of it. I read that in my master's level class. It was all about 19th century American women writers, right? And up until that point, I was obsessed with I was obsessed with the British novelists. I loved George Eliot. I loved the Bronte sisters. I loved Jane Austen. And then I discovered in that class that there were all of these United States women writers who were doing the exact same thing, but for this United States audience. So it was a little bit different, but it has all of these same elements. And they were in conversation with the women in Britain. And for whatever reason, we never talk about them. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne talks about the damned mob of scribbling women writing in the 19th century because they were the ones who were selling books. People mm. like Ian Southworth, people like Lydia Mariah Child, people even like Louisa May Alcott, um, who wasn't really accepted in uh, regular schooling settings for a very long time. Mm. So, that's even to this day, I feel like even though we all read her, she's still in a like lesser category than like some of the other authors that you mentioned from from Britain or some of the male authors of the 19th century. Like, yeah, that's yeah. still there, I'd say. There's like this domestic space and there's this children's space and this women's space that does seem less than. And I, I think about this a lot when I'm doing my research and going like, well, I see those Ralph Waldo Emerson people in the other room, right? And there is this other side of sort of feeling about the male writers of that time frame, even though they were selling much less, they were much less well known. I don't know if you've ever read Sensational Designs by Jane Tompkins. She, it's so just even if you just read the intro, it's so good. Okay, Um, writing it down. So good. She she writes about how at the beginning of the 20th century, right when the university system was beginning to take root in the United States, there was this idea about well, what books are we going to teach to our children that are really indicative of United States history. Mm. And it's at this point that people like Herman Melville, who was not very, very popular during his time, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was not very popular during his time, have got into the canon, and then the women writers uh, weren't in there anymore. So I began to get really, um, I mean, to really care about these women's writers. And most of them were writing in the 19th century about this transition from girlhood to womanhood. Mm-hmm. And I began to really think that perhaps it is because it is these girl stories that we're just not as interested in thinking of as sort of high art, but boy stories are a different story, right? Mm-hmm. Huck Finn is the great American yes. novel, whereas Little Women is not seen in that same light. So that's really where my research impetus is to bring back girls' stories, to talk about girls' lives, to talk about what they're reading, and do it with the same literary gaze that I think male authors do all the time. There's something like, oh, I finished Moby Dick that is different than I finished Little Women. You don't you don't quite hear that same sort of lilt in your voice as you talk about one of the other, even though I think that they're both equally good and philosophical, spiritual, emotional, writing, writing ways. Mm, I love that. I think, um, 
I think even pointing to that, their stories about girlhood and how we treat boyhood stories differently is really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. I think there's something about uh, following those narratives of girlhood into womanhood that um, that uh, they they're so meaningful when you read them. As I mean, Little Women is such an obvious example, but they, that was such a meaningful book for me. And I love that you're bringing that spotlight to them. So I did want to ask you though, because this is something that I genuinely. When I started thinking about your research and I was like, I have no idea what the answer to this is. When did the idea of novels for children or adolescents uh, come about? Because the novel in the 19th century is still fairly new as like a widespread genre, right? Uh, it had only come into being in the West uh, a, a little bit before. So this is when did people start writing novels for for kids? So there's always been some sort of educational tracks for kids. The Puritans had sort of alphabet books, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. Well, there were just tablets, um, things like that. And then there were some moral stories. But there really wasn't novels targeted for children until about the 1850s in the United States when the printing press began to be more widely available here. You were able to get cheaper copies and things like the Horatio Alger Ragged Dick series, right? Just sort of pulling yourself off from your bootstraps became very, very popular. And then for for young women, it really was 1868 when Little Women was published, was just this pivotal year because of two two books. The first one is Little Women, and the second one is a, another book series that I study quite often called the Elsie Densmore series. I read those as a kid. Yes. <laughs> read these. I'm so excited. <laughs> yes, I, I had them. Uh, I think the only reason why I read them was that our local Christian bookstore had a like. Elsie Dinsmore, like they sold them and I didn't love them, but they were what was available like at that bookstore. So I would get them. But really, I thought that Elsie was pretty boring, to be honest. Oh, she's so pious. I mean, she's very pious. She's not a lot of fun. Like she's a little girl who is serious. And I think about this a lot in terms of why we don't, Adults don't usually like Elsie. Children a lot of times do, but we don't think of girls and we don't like girls who are very serious. We want them to be sort of joyous and fun. And right at this time period, right, you get Joe March and you get Elsie, who are two very different girls. And they really stay in the consciousness for a long time. So there are still Elsie clubs all over the world today, the United States and Japan. There are quite a few of them okay. and dolls, dresses, dresses, even as Elsie would grow up. I was just reading um, an article about about this for another collection I'm doing, and it was like, oh, you will go to the local department store and you'll want to dress up like Elsie did. And Little Women had the same amount of excitement where there are all of these dolls, this material culture wrapped around the this uh, book for girls. And so at that time, there were 
magazines created just for young women. Alcott was editing one. There was a children's friend. There was a youth companion. And so it was really during this time, especially right after the Civil War, where you're sort of worried about how have the children been affected by mm. this war? What ought we be teaching them? Um, we know that they're going through this moral strife. And so there were just at that time, tons of uh, new books, short stories, magazines dedicated just for children. How interesting. So um, yeah, I had no idea. And that makes so much sense that that would rise in popularity after the Civil War. Like what a what a weird and yet totally sensible situation. Um, And especially since most, so many of them were really concerned, like both Little Women and the Elsie Densmore series are books that are explicitly concerned with moral questions and spiritual questions. And, and so, yeah, that all, it all comes together. Um, So why should adults read literature written for children and adolescents of the past? What does it have to offer us, do you think? Well, at the time Little Women was written, people were sort of amazed that there were so many adults who would show up at Alcott events who were reading it for pleasure at the time. And it seems as if this is the same conversation that we have all of the time now, right? Should adults be reading this uh, this matter for children. One of the um, one of my favorite scholars is a scholar named Nina Beim, and she writes an entire book about women's fiction. Then she ends it in 1868 when uh, Little Women and Elsie Densmore comes out, and she says, "Well, after this, it was basically drivel for children, right? These two could change the literary landscape, and now we have children's literature sort of take over." and I do think there are topics that are really complex that children's literature can get into that you don't necessarily get in adult fiction. Mm. You have ideas about morality. You have ideas about uh, how you ought to act in the world, whereas adult fiction will often grapple with, well, we're here. This is really difficult. Oh, well, and not necessarily proffer that answer. And I think a lot of times adults will go back and be like, oh, I would like to hear at least some ideas, right? What mm. in particular author give? And in some ways, I do think it is it is comfort reading that most of the reading that takes place, period, but in the United States especially is by women and it's by children. And if you ask people what their favorite books are, it's usually going to be something that they had from their childhood that affected them. Yeah. And so I think there is this sort of pull to go back, figure out what it is that children are interested in now. And perhaps maybe you might find something about yourself along the way. One of my favorite articles is from, I think it's from the New New Yorker, but, and I assign it in my um, literary theory class because we read Henry James and then we also read Little Women and The question is this, right? Should you be reading Henry James or should you be reading Little Women? And that article says specifically Henry James only. He is the height height of everything. (laughs) And he gave Little Women a bad review saying, but he is sort of this, this height of literary high style. And I think that there's something really good and valuable. I love James, but 
Um, I also think there's something really good and valuable in children's fiction. And mm-hmm. so ideally we should be reading both. I love least- that, that, you, that it's like, let's not create like a false dichotomy between say Henry James and Louisa May Alcott as if you can't read Alcott, but you, if you don't have time to read James where it, it's like, Hey, these are answering different needs in us as readers and are both really valuable in that there's not a hierarchy there of, of readerliness or something. Um, and I, I feel like that's true. Like even in daily life, like if most of us, maybe some people aren't this way, but I'm not this way. Um, can't just read Henry James all the time. Like you have to have, you have to have other things and they feed each other actually. Um, and I feel like, and uh, Alcott feeds a different need and desire and part of my brain and heart and brain, not just, not just a heart. It's not just a like, Oh, warm, cozy, comfort food, even though it is, but it, it is actually feeding different parts of my mind to than a Henry James would. I love that, that together is best. <laughs> um, so let's get into Louisa May Alcott then. That seems like a good segue. Can you tell us about her life and give us some context on who she was and what she cared about and what was going on? Yeah, so if you've read Little Women, I feel as if you have an idea of who Louisa May Alcott is just from the Joe character, because she did base so much of that story on her life. With this said, her life is a lot more difficult, right? We do have those, as you mentioned, those sort of warm and cozy, her heart feelings as you read Little Women. But Alcott's own life is much more difficult. She had this father named Bronson Alcott, who is a famous transcendentalist, but he was really invested in ideas Mm -hmm. and he would do anything to get these ideas out in the world. So much so that he might neglect his family. I don't know. Like, and I love Bronson Alcott because I think we need those ideas people, but it ended up being that his wife, uh, Abigail, and his children would do all of this extra work. Uh, That's really one of the reasons why Louisa May Alcott started writing, in addition to all of these other jobs that she did, because she really wanted to try to help support her family. They moved countless times. Their entire family moved just countless times because they often couldn't pay their rent. And if they were paying their rent, it was usually because Someone else was funding it. So Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson, would he funded one of their moves to Concord, really both of their moves to Concord. And when he would leave after visiting them, he would hide money under tablecloths and throughout the house in hopes that they would find it because he knew that they were so desperate. Hmm. I think that was one of the most pivotal points of Alcott's life is when she lived on a utopian farm with her father uh, called well with her entire family but it was one that her father started with uh, a British naturalist Charles Lane it was called Fruitlands and she wrote a little story called Transcendental Wild Oats about it and there it was a lot of intellectuals getting together hoping that they could create this utopian community but most of them didn't want or know how to do 
the hard work of being mm. on a farm. And so Bronson Alcott would be seen walking out with his friends, having these philosophical conversations. He even took a tour for a while and left his family there. And the family basically ended up starving during the winter time. She talks about, Alcott talks about taking cold showers and how this was rather pleasant in the springtime. And then if you're thinking about Northeast winters, it's not quite so pleasant then. No. And the crops weren't really being tended to. So they didn't have much food stores. And that ended up really probably being the hardest time in her life. In fact, Charles Lane tried to convince his friend Bronson that the best way to live life was to be celibate and that they should both go to and take the entire family to a Shaker community, uh, which is known for its celibacy. And Alcott tried to convince his wife and children that that's how they should live their lives, that they should see themselves as this sort of family community writ large with everyone else there. And not really think of their little unit. And Abigail Alcott eventually took all the the mom, the marmy figure. She basically just took all the furniture from the house and said, we aren't doing this anymore. The women have been doing all of the labor while the men have been thinking. And we actually have to, to have our family. And she said that she would leave Bronson. And then he eventually came around um, and he broke up his relationship with Charles Lane and they, they moved um, back to um, back to Boston, I believe it was. So that way they could start a different kind of life. So that was her childhood growing up was rosy in the ways. I think if we think about our childhoods, no matter how uh, easy or difficult they were, you're always going to have these rosy family moments. And then, it's also more difficult. And so that's probably the most difficult part that she went through when she really thought her family was tearing apart. She writes in her journal very sadly about it. But then she goes back um, to Concord eventually. And once she's, after they've lived in Boston, they're very poor in Boston, they go back to Concord. And those were these Concord years um, in Orchard House are considered the little women years where she's as happy as the family can be. They have a little bit of income coming in from everyone. And they there's this feeling as if now they've come together and they really are going to live out their ideals. And I do think that that's what makes that family structure so unique, that they they were... Their house was on the Underground Railroad. Um, they were activists. They they ate. Uh, they were vegetarians in a very strict sense. Um, so they're living out all of these ideals. And sometimes this is wonderful. And sometimes it's also really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think you see the wonderful moments in Little Women. And she sort of obscures the really difficult ones, even yeah. though those are also part of her childhood. Well, it's really interesting that you're, I mean, that she draws upon her experience and her own personality so clearly as she writes, um, and but that she sort of recasts it in a more acceptable way. So you're talking about Bronson Alcott, who was an extremely gifted, talented person. I mean, uh, one of my favorite 
Alcott related things is that he was one of he was the first American publisher to publish Julian of Norwich's showings, which is one of my favorite texts. And I always thought that was such an interesting fact. But his distance and his idealism and how hard that made life for the family. And you think about how she recasts that in Little Women by having Mr. March be gone serving as a chaplain at war where you still have this distant father, but it's like for this totally noble (laughs) reason. And it's really interesting to see how she recasts those things. I always think about what did Bronson feel when he read Little Women? Because you know that the other characters, right, are really in this great positive light. And it's not that she says anything bad about Mr. March necessarily, but he's, as you mentioned, absent, which I think is probably how she felt emotionally. Yes. Yeah. Well, and we see it like we see, you know, the four daughters obviously are the, the centerpiece, but Marmy is such a huge part of that book. And uh, people think and talk about her all the time still and at the time. And Mr. March is completely an afterthought as far as like from a reader experience. You're like, oh, yeah. Like I, I for a long time as a kid, I read it I, when I was in third grade and I was even confused. I I was like... For a while, I thought that he was dead, you know, where you're like, he's totally a non-entity in in this. Um, and but then he just appears in the sense. he just appears, you're like, oh, wait, yeah, just kidding. He actually That's does exist. he's read it, right? <laughs> he's like, I got to put him back in here. <laughs> oh, yeah, wait, I got to, yeah. So I find that really interesting. everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I should mention, though, that because, because of Bronson Alcott's ideas, she did have some she had some sort of charmed ideas about life because she got to grow up right next to Ralph Waldo Emerson. She talks about visiting his library a lot and him giving her books. She took walks with Henry David Thoreau as a child. Oh yeah. No, like she, she has, and her writing is idealistic too, like in a really good way, I think like in a positive way where, where you read little women and it is an idealistic view of like, family relationships and aspirational in a lot of ways, right? And you can see that influence of these lofty thinkers and, you know, oh, this is the way the world should be. Like, it's really beautiful. Let's pursue it. And I think that's something that's really good. And so it's just interesting to hold the sort of the light side and the dark side of that together as you read Little Women. Um, Okay, so here's a very important question. Uh, Which of the Little Women did you identify with slash do you identify with? Because it's kind of like TV shows where everybody, all the girls who read little women know I'm, I'm an Amy or I'm a Joe. I'm a Meg. I've not really met anybody who says they're a Beth, but. um, Well, I'm going to answer this, but I'm going to expect you to answer this after me. Okay. Okay. Let's go. (laughs) I feel as if that, I feel it's in really good books, right? You change throughout your life. Yes. Sometimes you're one and sometimes you're another. Yes. Yes. And I, there was this, um, there's like a, a meme on Twitter going around recently that was like, who are you? And I saw all of these women um, who, right, th- this is, I feel like the circle that I follow, who were like, here's Marmy. And I thought, it's like Nancy Drew. Like, I, I love my kids and I love my family. 
I just don't think I would ever actually be Marvie. She's so good. She's so wonderful. No, she she is. Just what to say. Even when writing Little Women, Abigail Alcott had given Louisa May Alcott this shawl to wear. She was her inspiration shawl. Like their their relationship is something. Love to to be Marmy, but I'm not. So I think that I am reading this uh, recently and teaching it. I think I'm Meg, who sort of struggles at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, she she gets married. She is it's embarrassing, a little vain, right? She really cares about her clothes, right? I love buying dresses, so this is very Meg-like of me. But also, in the same way, she's very practical. She's someone who cares about art. She cares about her family. And it's not as if she ends up bankrupting her family. But there is a moment when she goes to her other friends who are married's houses and she marries, uh, she marries a, a man named John Brooks, who is doesn't have as much money so she goes to other people's houses and she thinks oh I really wish that I could you know have what they have and there's a struggle that happens between her and her husband Mm -hmm. and eventually they learn how to work together to fulfill both of their lives he's interested in sort of politics and business so she brings him into her house one day because he begins to just go out with his friends because their relationship isn't going well And she asks him, will you tell me what's going on in your world? Talk to me about business. And so she listens. And then he, they sit there for a few minutes. And then he says, I noticed that you have a new bonnet. Can you tell me about your bonnet? (laughs) (laughs) And so there is this moment where they begin to sort of switch roles. He begins to learn that he should actually be at home more looking after the children and her go out more and experience uh, the life outside. And they should have this more balanced relationship, but it's not an automatic easy thing where they just get married. They have kids and they know exactly what to do. She, as I remember having two kids very, very quickly together. I was uh, like born very quickly together and I was like just overwhelmed and about how she was overwhelmed until she and her husband talked about it and he helped her out. So I feel like I'd love to be Marmy, but I struggle a little and I'm more of like Meg. (laughs) But it, you know, my relationship with my husband is great, but it takes some discussion. (laughs) Well, and I think Meg is a great character in that way because in some ways she's more relatable than some of the other characters because she's just more like, for instance, Joe has this driving passion. It takes her to the big city. She's like, has this huge success after all these failures. I mean, her story is just a little more dramatic. And then Amy Mary's super wealthy and like, like lives, you know, is an artist, lives in this artist dreamland, which is also really lovely and beautiful. But I think Meg's story is just much more of like, and she gets underappreciated sometimes because of this. She's much more like, I want to live a happy life. And I, she, she wants this like domesticity and again, also gets dismissed because of that. But, um, it has this and then has to work that out 
really has to work it out because that requires working out too, just like the other things. And so I do love that. I would say for me, um, I, well, it's funny because I said no one relates to Beth, but I definitely related to Beth when I first read it as a kid because she was so shy and I was brutally shy as a kid. And I loved seeing a book character who was shy and acted like a shy person. Cause I think a lot of authors write shy characters, but then they don't act like shy people because that's boring for a narrative. Cause guess what? The shy people aren't going to do the things cause they're afraid of doing them. Right. Um, and so seeing Beth who was genuinely shy and acted like a shy person, I was like, oh, that's me. I do that too. Like, I don't want to, to put it in modern terms, I don't want to order anything at the restaurant ever. Like, I don't want to speak to anyone, you know? So seeing Beth hiding and playing the piano secretly and all that kind of stuff, I was like, oh, that's me. Um, but I don't think I really relate to Beth as, a, as an adult because yeah. similarly, Beth is much, a much better person than I am, a much more loving soul, uh, servant's heart person. But I think as a, as a grown-up, I like your answer about Meg. I haven't, I hadn't thought of that, but I'm like, that's, that rings true to life. My, my oldest daughter is uh, reading Little Women for the first time right now, very slowly. And her name is Margaret. And uh, so I said, which, which sister do you like the best? And she says, well, Meg, her name is Margaret. Um, and then she got really embarrassed at the ballroom scene when Meg is is having her vain moment. And and my Margaret had to put the book away for a little bit because she was like, what's going to happen? She's not being herself, mama. But she feels so real. I feel like I think it's maybe other people. It doesn't feel right. I feel it's a, maybe in college at some point, right? I might have... I could just envision doing something yes. like this. Yeah, well, and I think it, it feels so real because this it's not like she is utterly making a fool of herself. Like, it's not like she's doing something wildly inappropriate. I think that's why it feels so real is that you're like, oh, that could, I could do that. Like, I could be a foolish and vain. Like, that, that sounds like something I could do. If some rich person comes and says, you can wear these pretty dresses. <laughs> and, then I, I, then I'm a, and then I'm a fool about it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I love that. Um, so... I think you're going to ask this question, but I think this is probably the only podcast about Little Women or anything about Little Women where the people have chosen Beth and Meg. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Where are all of our Joes at? I feel like everyone. Joe and Amy. Joe and Amy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I know I, that's hilarious and so true. <laughs> Maybe when I release this episode, I will put out a poll and people will have to answer which one oh, yes. you think they are. Um, okay, so let's not neglect some of uh, Louise, Louisa May Alcott didn't only write Little Women and its sequels. She also wrote some other uh, books that I also really have loved. Um, is Little Women your favorite of her works or do you like some of the other ones? Um, can you tell us about some of the other ones for any interested readers who want to expand their knowledge of Louisa May Alcott's writing? So Louisa May Alcott wrote under a pseudonym for a long time called A.N. Barnard. And she wrote what would then be called Blood and Thunder Tales, but they are gothic tales, right? I mentioned earlier that I love 
Jane Eyre and the Bronte sisters and that book, The Hidden Hand, that everyone should read. One of my favorite texts by her is called Behind a Mask or A Woman's Power. It's about an aging actress who realizes that probably she's not going to be in the theater anymore. And she, or you know, at least her, she's got a shelf life. And so she goes to this mansion and decides that she is going to marry any of the men who are there. I won't spoil happens at the end, but I will tell you that her name is Jean Moore. So it sounds a lot like Jane Eyre. And Ooh. there's a tree scene for those of you who have read Jane Eyre. Ooh. And she kind of recreates a lot of what happens in Jane Eyre. And it's very short. I mean, it's probably about 100 pages. But she recreates this story with a woman who realizes, a main character woman who realizes the power that acting feminine can give her. Interesting. And she's very much play acting. She actually wears a younger person's wig. She wears makeup. She takes out her dentures at some point. Like, <laughs> completely different than what she looks like to the people who she's in this house with. And it's this gothic sort of horror little tale that she was writing under the pseudonym um, and no one knew about it for years. And in fact, I mentioned earlier that sort of the fame of little women I really believe that the only reason that we talk about little women in college and universities and schools right now is because we found out that she had a male pseudonym and she had books beyond little women that mm. were like this, that were a little, uh, that were a little less for children. They're targeted to adults and they have, I think more, overtly feminist themes that people can sort of glom onto because mm -hmm. they these were covered during the, the second wave of feminism. I really always loved maybe even more than little women at some points in my life. Although now I think little women is probably number one for me as an adult, but I loved her book, uh, an old fashioned girl. That was one of my all time favorites. Um, when I was younger and very much in the vein of Little Women, for those of you who haven't read it. So if you like Little Women, um, you will probably like this book, which is similar themes, girlhood into womanhood in New England, that time period, um, discovering who you are, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. It's briefer, which is nice. It is. It's, like it's nice and brief. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I like even I didn't even realize um, that for many years I had been reading a uh, a shortened version of Little Women, uh, and then I got the real version finally when I realized it. And yeah, that book is a brick. It's a huge yeah. book. <laughs> so, um, four hundred pages. She talked. She wrote the first four hundred pages of the book that we think of as Little Women. The first part within six weeks. And she was like, I did this, right? 400 pages. So I'm not sure how long it ends up being overall, but double, like probably around 800. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. <laughs> um, okay. So last question for you um, before we have to kind of wrap things up, which is 
What is your favorite adaptation of Little Women? And I love asking these questions of people who work on popular works like Jane Austen, because everybody always has an opinion on what the best adaptations are. Oh, it's hard. Okay. So I feel like in some ways this is a, a generational question. So I feel like I I have to answer that I love the Winona writer Joe March, like 1990s film. And when I envisioned my kids getting to the age where we can watch Little Women together, I think that one is the one that we'll watch. Right? It's in chronological mm. order. I love that. I love the characters in there. I think Susan Sarandon as Marmy is just spot on, and I I just have such a soft spot in my heart for that one. So I love it. With that said, I do I did like the Greta Gerwig version. Um, I felt as if the Greta Gerwig version was made for academics like myself in a lot of ways because really yeah I didn't like that that they took away some of the tension about what's going to happen between Joe and Lori find this Mm. out right at the beginning like Joe Um, doesn't seem interested in him whereas in the it you in the books you kind of are like will they won't they for some of it yeah I mean you find out like within the first 20 minutes that he is off with Amy and that that marriage has happened like it is in this sort of flashback style and she does have these homages for Joe sounds and sounds like Louisa May Alcott she takes quotes directly from Alcott and puts them in there and I was like oh it's, it's like a little Easter egg right there for me I know where this is from but I don't know. I didn't. And, and I enjoyed it. I just uh, didn't love it as much as sort of just the pure story. Because I think there is something about that tension. like mm-hmm. The chronological like, narrative where you're just yeah. finding out. And the Beth, you find out she dies pretty early. I don't know. I just feel like there's... Yeah. I want you to be angrier that Joe and, and Lori don't end up together. It's such an important moment in the novel and in the adaptations where there is such this letdown and then there's this coming to adulthood and realism that happens. But also, I just love Winona Ryder. So. Fair. Very fair. Okay, that brings me, I didn't write this down as a question to ask you, but I can't believe I didn't because it is such an important question, which is, should Joe have ended up with Lori? Uh, no, I think that's why Little Women is so, I think it, I think it's why it remains popular because it feels I think more real to everyday experiences. Like, and I still, like, I say that. And every time I read it, and I teach this about once a year, like, I cry, like, ridiculous. I'll cry at Joe and Lori, at um, Joe and Lori. Like, I really want them to end up together. But I also realize that that's, you know, you might not end up with your high school boyfriend. Um, you <laughs> might think that that is the love of your life, but perhaps that's not. It's, it's not right you move on you have other life experiences and I think there is a sort of realistic notion of what marriage and love is that Alcott gets to so I'm and I I do think that the in an adult gaze I feel as if the Amy and Lori match makes more sense because they are just a little bit different than each other Amy can actually you can see her 
out on the town in her dresses, really supporting their their philanthropic work. Whereas Joe would hate that. She would hate having <laughs> to go to these parties and do all of that. That's why she's hiding from the beginning. So I, I think Amy and Lori are a better match, but it still breaks my heart and I cry at all of the, the at all. I think of all of the scenes, right? The ones in the movies, the one in the book. So I will say like, give credit. I I totally give credit to the Gerwig adaptation that I think that's the most appealing version of Amy I've seen. Like that was a version of Amy that I, because Amy was always the sister that I least uh, related to. And burning Joe's manuscript. I know. I could not forgive her as a writer. That is, you know, wow, that was a low point. But I think uh, Gerwig's adaptation really picked up on some things in Amy that I really appreciate. I I appreciate how good of a reader Gerwig is of Little Women. Um, And uh, it it kind of made me mad. Some of the reviews were saying, like, Gerwig's feminist adaptation. I'm like, the book was always feminist. Like, you're, you're, like, acting like this is this old-fashioned, ridiculous, like, oh, she updated it. And I'm like, no, she's just a good reader of the book. That's what the book is. The book is celebrating women and uh, pointing out these different life paths. And and so, anyways, off my rant about that. But I think... I still am sad that Joe didn't end up with Lori. I just, I can't, I can't get over it. And I love the professor. I think he's a good man. And, but I am sorry. I, I just, yeah. Even with the whole like more realistic adulthood stuff, I'm like, no. <laughs> like the Joe and Lori forever t-shirt. Totally. Yes. Yes. I, I just, yeah, that's just me. Anyways, um, well, okay, so for folks interested in following you, getting to know some of your work, you do some writing for some other publications outside of academic settings as well. Uh, where can they find you online? So I, I feel like because of my age, I'm on Facebook, so you can find me there. But I'm also on, on Twitter, um, and it's just my name, which is confusing, but it's Luella um, underscore D'Amico on Twitter, so you can find me there, too. Great, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was so fun to talk about Louisa May Alcott with you. I so appreciated it. Yes, it was a blast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. You can find me online at my Substack, Medievalish with Grace Hammond, or on Instagram at Old Books with Grace, or on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD. Make sure if you haven't yet that you also check out my brand new, super exciting new book, Jesus Through Medieval Eyes. Holding Christ with the artists, mystics, and theologians of the Middle Ages. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.